Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, my name is Kelly McFall, and I'm the host of the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Gina Chan, co-author of the book Behind the Killing Fields, a Khmer Rouge leader and one of his victims, published by the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Kelly McFall. And I'm the host of the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Every month or so, I interview the author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'll be interviewing Gina Chan, co-author of the book Behind the Killing Fields, a Khmer Rouge leader and one of his victims, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press as part of its Pennsylvania Studies and Human Rights series. One of the most common responses to stories of mass killing is to wonder how someone could conceive of the killing of many thousands of people. The question becomes even more bitter when a leader of the destruction is still alive and apparently untroubled by his actions. Gina Chan spent hundreds of hours interviewing Nun Chia, brother number two in the Khmer Rouge, asking about his life, about the struggle to overturn the Lan Nau government in Cambodia, and about the devastating policies the Khmer Rouge followed while they ruled that country. What emerges is not just an explanation of the past, but an examination of how Nun Chia remembers and explains that past, both to Gina and to himself. Alongside this narrative, Gina and her co-author, Sambet Tet, tell the parallel story of the experience of Sambet during the rule of the Khmer Rouge. The losses Sambet suffered during what is often called an autogenocide makes his ambiguous reconciliation with Nunchia even more striking. I learned a lot from the book and from the interview. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with Gina, and I think you'll enjoy listening to it. So, here it is. Hi, Gina. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate it. For our listeners today, I should tell you... Um, I'm interviewing Gina Chan, co-author of a fascinating new book called Behind the Killing Fields, a Khmer Rouge leader and one of his victims. Uh, It's a wonderful book, uh, particularly uh, because it helps us understand how uh, its main subject, uh, Nunchia, excuse me, uh, brother number two in the Cambodian uh, genocide and the leadership of the Khmer Rouge, remembers and evaluates that period uh, from, from years later. I teach a course in genocide studies, and my students are constantly asking how someone could decide that genocide or genocidal policies are appropriate or morally acceptable. Uh, And I think Gina uh, and her co-author do a a fabulous job of illustrating Chia's mindset uh, at the time and now. And and so I encourage everyone to find a copy and, and read it. I think you'll find it rewarding. So Gina, let's let's just start by giving you a chance to tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a reporter and have spent most of my career overseas as a foreign correspondent. And actually going to Cambodia was the first time 
I went overseas. It was shortly after I graduated from college and had always dreamed of, you know, doing overseas reporting. And that happened to be the place that had an opening where I was um, offered a job. And so I worked at uh, an English language newspaper called the Cambodia Daily. And that's where I met uh, my co-author, Sambat Tet, who we then spent many um, hours and many grueling trips going to former Khmer Rouge strongholds because that was the um, the hot story in Cambodia at the time. It's just, you know, what are these uh, former Khmer Rouge leaders doing? What's happening to them? What are the efforts to bring them to justice? And that's kind of how we got started. Yeah. Um- uh, your your colleague was a, a, a alive and and you might say a victim during the genocide. Is that right? How did how did he get to uh, be part of this project? He uh, was a journalist at the Cambodia Daily, which is the paper where we had both worked at. And he, you know, like many Khmer or Khmer Rouge victims, um, wasn't you know educated in uh, journalism. Spent a lot of time in in refugee camps, so it wasn't a natural sort of career path for him, but uh, he learned English and sort of gradually sort of fell into journalism and ended up being really great at it. He was great at drawing people out and obviously because of his history and his country's history was very interested in the Khmer Rouge period and in particular getting some of these leaders who are very, um, you know, not... uh, eager to talk about what had happened to, to get them to try to explain what, what happened that caused, you know, such a terrible tragedy and terrible period in, in this history. So you started to, to, to travel and to, uh, to investigate this. How did you decide to make it into a book? In the beginning, when we first met Nunchia, it wasn't clear we would have anything because like the other Khmer Rouge leaders, he was denying, you know, being a major player in the regime. He was blaming Pol Pot, who had at that point had um, been passed away for many years. So he was sort of the easy one to blame for many of the leaders. Um, and he, you know, didn't really want to talk about uh, his role at that time. So. In the beginning, we we actually didn't have that much. It was only after repeated visits when he slowly gained our trust and he felt like we were earnest and trying to really understand what had happened that he slowly started talking about what had really gone on at that time. And we started to realize then that we might actually have a book, but it, it actually probably took a year or so for him to actually trust us enough to really start talking about it. And and as you did so, I mean, one of the things I like the most about your book is the sense in which it combines both a, a, a kind of a narrative history, but especially focuses on how Nunchia, how he remembers that and, and, and what he sees his role. And the sense I got was that that some of what he said was both true and accurate, right? It happened and he remembered it. Yeah. Some of it was uh, he remembered something that probably didn't happen in the way he remembered it. And some of it was somewhere in the middle. How do you kind of untangle all of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that was something that we um, had to 
think carefully about because we didn't just want to be his mouthpiece and just kind of have him use us to be his defender or kind of, you know, try to explain away things in a way that kind of, you know, let him off the hook, if, if you will. Um, so we did a lot of our own research. We talked to um, a lot of his relatives, people in his neighborhood, um, other Khmer Rouge leaders, other Khmer Rouge foot soldiers, and we tried to get a really holistic picture so that when, when we could, we could either sort of verify or kind of check some of the things that he had told us. I mean, obviously there's some things like conversations between him and Pol Pot that we just had to sort of, um, and, you know, go through the history of obviously, you know, the Indochina period, the French colonial period, Thai history, Vietnamese history, you know, and actually he, he ended up having a great memory. Like, you remember the day that Stalin died and when he was in Thailand for that and how he had this little ceremony mourning him. And, and it was amazing because I thought when I looked back to actually verify that date that he would probably be wrong, but he actually had it correct. So he, he actually yeah, that's it's 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 almost as much a detective story as anything else. It seems to me sometimes. Um, let me ask you about about his life, because what one of the things that struck me as I was reading this is his childhood seems to have been oh I don't know comfortable, uh, maybe even more privileged than that. He's um he's the the the, the child from whom everybody hopes uh, everybody hopes will be the star of the family. How does somebody like that end up becoming a communist? And that was one of the, the things that we really wanted to explore, you know, how did he come to be this figure in Cambodian history? And, and you're right, he was uh, fairly privileged. Um, he was the oldest uh, son. He liked to study, so the elders in his family sort of doted on him. Um, but he was a very serious child, and and you can see that characteristics sort of carried throughout his life and you know he wasn't one to sort of play around and he wasn't you know later on into girls or anything like that very sort of had this kind of puritanical nature to him even when he was young and that kind of led to his political awakening and in, in Thailand when he saw you know the colonial period or or certain corruption in the government and there were many coups in Thailand at the time and so he joining some of the student movements there which were at that time very connected to the leftist and the communist movement. And so he's in China or sorry Thailand um, he moves back to Cambodia and takes up the struggle for Cambodian independence. Uh, some of our listeners will, know, listeners will know something about that. Many will not. Can you just kind of briefly describe uh, how Cambodia proceeds to independence and, and, and what Chia's reaction to that was? Sure. Well, you know, it was under the um, French colonialism for quite some time. Then during World War II, um, Japan took over for a while. And uh, but all along, you know, Cambodia was was trying to fight against colonialism and, you know, much like Vietnam and, and Laos was as well. And 
the king um, at that time, or who eventually became the king, um, you know, can, he negotiated um, independence from France, um, I think, in, in 1954. But um, it wasn't a perfect independence because the French still had sway over, you know, much of the politics and, frankly, much of the revenue that was coming out of Cambodia. And so Nunchia saw that as what he called, you know, not a perfect independence. And so that was something that was still worth fighting for, that they really needed to um, make sure that Cambodia was truly independent and that France no longer had a say in, in the politics and who could be the leader and, and all of that. And so how, how did he then try and fight for this? So he becomes a student of the Vietnamese communists. He ends up going to Vietnam to study, you know, even under Ho Chi Minh and other um, sort of well-known Vietnamese communist leaders um, and, you know, learns about um, the Chinese communist history as well. There were a lot of, you know, propaganda type movies that they were shown. Um, they read books by Mao, they read books by Lenin, and, you know, slowly kind of starting to try to form some sort of political foundation. Um, so after he gains this education, he comes back to Cambodia to try to build the Communist Party there. Yeah, I, how is it that he becomes one of the leaders? Is this a result of kind of his personal leadership qualities or the background that he has? How does he end up in this position? Yeah, a lot of the uh, leaders of the Khmer Rouge um, were sort of more educated than the rest of the population. And because of his background, and he had gone to law school in Thailand, um, although he, he ended up not finishing, um, he was seen as someone who had the mindset to, to be able to sort of lead and, and analyze the situation. And, you know, he wasn't part of that big of a group. So I think it, at that time, the Cambodian communist movement was pretty young and Vietnam was much bigger and older movement. And so the few that sort of came on board in those early years in the 1950s um, had a chance to sort of, I think, ascend faster than, than others. And Nunchia's uncle-in-law also happened to already be a communist leader as well. Um, he later defected, which affected Nunchia, but, um, but at that time, in the 1950s, he was still, his uncle-in-law, Suhang, was one of the, the leaders of the movement. And but because he defected, he would later be one of the first killed in his village by the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, it, it, and, and this is the period where he meets Pol Pot, correct? Um, he meets Pol Pot in Phnom Penh and, um, you know, in some sort of secret meeting in a park. And the two become, you know, fast friends. I mean, they become as close as people like that can be, I guess, and spent a lot of time talking about their own childhoods. You know, uh, Pol Pot was also sent away when he was young um, to study, and then he eventually went and studied in France, and Nunchia didn't 
go to Europe, but he did go to Thailand. And they both talked about, you know, their time away from their family and their um, their parents also died, or at least Nunchia's father died at a younger age. Um, and Pol Pot's parents also died at a young age. So they bonded over that. And they were sort of the yin and the yang. I mean, Nunchia was seen as much more sort of harsh and um, blunt with people. He wasn't very, you know, diplomatic in the way he talked to people. Um, he was sort of in your face about it. Whereas Pol Pot, surprisingly, you know, um, given who he was, but in, in person, he was sort of described as a much more kind of non-confrontational sort of person. And so they were sort of the, basically the good cop, bad cop together and you know to this day i mean when we would see nunchia he would never say bad things about pol pot the way the other Khmer Rouge leaders would it was always amazing how much he defended him probably will dying day yeah i was actually really impressed by that part and, and and we'll get to that more when we talk about the aftermath of of the Khmer Rouge rule can I ask then um, how it was if 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 Nunchia was was the kind of blunt one? How he ended up being entrusted with, as I understand it, kind of relations with Vietnam and with other kind of important political and diplomatic tasks. Well, the Khmer Rouge, at, you know, at a very early stage, um, I guess, like any other revolutionary where you're constantly in hiding and constantly trying to avoid getting arrested, you know, started from the beginning of their movement, developing a sort of paranoia about secrecy and who's after them and who could they trust. And um, because Nunchi had been a part of the movement for so long and his closeness to Pol Pot, um, he was seen as one of the few people that Pol Pot trusted to handle that kind of work. And Nunchia, because he studied in Vietnam, he also knows Vietnamese and knew the leaders quite well. So even though he was, you know, maybe not the easiest to negotiate with, he was seen as the best choice. Yeah, I, I want to return to that secrecy issue in, in just a second, because I think it's important. Can you say something? I mean, you, you talk in the book about how difficult and complicated the relationship with Vietnam was before 1975. Can you say something about that? Sure. I mean, Cambodia and Vietnam historically had a very acrimonious relationship. Um, they've always been competitors, and Vietnam, you know, southern Vietnam, which includes what was Saigon and is now Ho Chi Minh City, um, Cambodians still call it Kampuchea Krom, which means you know, southern Cambodia. It's the, it used to be Cambodian land, and through years of war, it became part of Vietnam. So there was always this history of um, acrimony between them, but they became united um, in the 1950s because of their fight first against the French and then later against uh, the U.S. So they sort of temporarily um, suspended their sort of traditionally more hostile relations to work together for a common cause. But there was always these simmering tensions, even when they did work together, they always felt like Vietnam was sort of the overbearing bigger brother, always telling them what to do, telling them that, you know, they shouldn't um, run as fast as Vietnam and, 
you know, make it seem like um, they were kind of the subjects of, of Vietnam. And so Nunchia and Pol Pot in particular really resented that. So this, this strange kind of tolerate, tolerating them slash hate relationship with, you know, obviously um, the Vietnamese and outside the Khmer Rouge. So the, mm-hmm. the true nature of that relationship yeah. is there. <laughs> So, so this this kind of long march to power takes more than a decade, and and one one of the things I was struck with is, is the way in which that kind of experience of struggling for power shaped the people in the Khmer Rouge, the kind of secrecy that became second nature to them, the kind of I don't know if paranoia is the right word, but the constant looking around for enemies. Can can you say a little bit about how that happened, and, and maybe give some examples about how that played out? Yeah, no, it was. Um, I the main characteristics of the regime and its leaders that then caused them to make certain decisions that just led to this tragedy in their history. And you're right, after that long of sort of hiding and, you know, trying to avoid arrest, their members being tortured. I mean, Nunchi would talk all the time about how he constantly had to move, and one time he was listing all the different houses he lived in. I mean, he would move when the persecution got really bad. He would start moving, like, maybe every month or so. Um, and he said he wore his daytime clothes to bed so that he could just run if he needed to. Um, and would get up at, like, 3 in the morning because that's, you know, the rest usually happened in the middle of the night. Um, so he kind of scheduled his his sleeping patterns based on that. And so by the time um, you get to 1975, when they come to power, they are just sort of full-blown in this kind of crazy conspiratorial secretive mode where they see, you know, a boogeyman around every corner. And it then shapes, you know, how they, they reign. And... We could see it in Nunchia when we met him and the times that we spent with him. I mean, he, after I think a few months or so of us talking to him, he sent his aides to investigate us in Phnom Penh and make sure we were actually who we said we were. Um, he talked about always having a gun next to him just in case, you know, the enemy, which he says are still out there. I mean, he still believes that there's these people are trying to, you know, probably Vietnam, that they're trying to take over Cambodia and take over its resources. And he still harbors that sort of suspicion to this day. Yeah, I was really struck by that. And and recognizing I'm asking you to speculate, is is he right? Is there a reason for him to be so paranoid? Or is this just kind of long habit? When you live Thinking that way for so long, it's it's really hard to shake. I mean, even after the Khmer Rouge, well, they're ousted then by the Vietnamese. So in some way, you could say some of his predictions came true. But obviously, mm-hmm. that wouldn't probably have happened if they hadn't, you know, killed all these people and some of their soldiers defected to Vietnam and then came back as the invading army. So obviously, there are you know, cause and effect there. But sometimes he can't seem to see the cause. He only will recognize the effect and use that to sort of feed his 
um, ideas about secrecy of enemies. So the other thing that, that, that jumps out at me about this period is the way in which Chia has this kind of complete and utter dedication to the party. Uh, for him personally, and, and also an expectation that everyone who will be participating in this movement has the same kind of absolute dedication that he does. Um, it, I'm right, he even asked the party or members of the party to find a wife for him, is that right? Yeah, no, it was, his dedication was so much stronger than others were because, you know, we had met um, Ng Suri Pol Pot's brother-in-law, we met Kyusan Pan, who was the public face of the Khmer Rouge, and they were definitely not, you know, that dedicated, and particularly Ng Suri became very, I think, seduced with material goods of the world, but Nunchi was never like that, and you're right, he did ask the party to find a wife for him, and he says, you know, for him it wasn't about attraction or beauty or anything like that. It was just finding a woman who could withstand the struggles of being part of the movement. Sort of a strange reason. I mean, he never talks about love or any sort of emotions like that. Everything was for the party. And even, you know, when the Khmer Rouge sort of fell apart and they, they began practicing an actual capitalist activity like, you know, logging and selling gemstones. Mm -hmm. And he, unlike others who, I think, basically, you know, siphoned off some of those earnings for themselves, he would give everything to the party. So if you go to his house, it's a pretty modest wooden home on these stilts. Um, they don't have much in, in ways of, you know, luxuries. And his children, Children also don't have anything, which if you see the other leaders' children, they're, some of them are actually pretty well off now. But Nunchi was so dedicated that he didn't give anything to them. And, you know, he's very frank about his children blaming him for that. That must be hard to see that as his reward for decades of service. Yeah, he um, you know, talks about it being sort of bittersweet and how he fought for so long um, for justice and for you know Cambodian independence and that he wasn't able to achieve his goals without sometimes any sense that like he helped bring on the devastation and mm -hmm. uh, chaos and, and killing that you know he and his regime are parts of the reasons why Cambodia one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia, and there's no infrastructure and healthcare is really poor. And he, but he sometimes doesn't place himself as a participant in that. So these extraordinarily dedicated, battle-hardened uh, revolutionaries who have been fighting for decades uh, win, or at least win for the moment in 1975. Uh, during this 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 period, as I understand it, Pol Pot and Chia had had spent a fair amount of time thinking about what Cambodia would look like after they, they got power. What's their vision? What do they want Cambodia to be like? Well, that was one of the, the fascinating things about learning from him and how he saw that period where, I mean, they really wanted to do a total makeover of Cambodian society. They felt like people had become corrupt and they were too greedy and there was, you know, 
too much sort of pleasure in society and they felt like all of that had to be erased and they would basically start over from scratch and rebuild a Cambodia in which, you know, there was no money, there was no privacy, there were no markets, everybody worked for the collective good of the nation, which meant, you know, usually toiling away in the, um, in the farms and growing rice and other crops. And it was just a total remake of society in a very extreme way. I mean, they felt like they had to go faster than the Chinese did in their Great Leap Forward. They felt like they had to go faster than the Vietnamese. So they went more extreme than you know, almost any other communist movement in history. Yeah, why this, why this pressing need for speed? Well, they felt, uh, especially with Vietnam, they felt like they really had to develop faster than them because Vietnam, they were their temporary friend, you know, in the 50s and, and 60s when they were fighting a common enemy. But now that they had both gained victory, they felt that Vietnam at some point would turn its eyes on Cambodia and try to take it over, make it, you know, some sort of um, kind of little brother kind of country. And, uh, they were very paranoid about that, which then made them create these crazy, unachievable goals that, you know, you would think with all their education, they would realize that it was unrealistic, but they were so caught up in their own fervor and believing in Cambodia's great destiny. And these are the people who bought, built the Angkor Wat temples. So there's nothing they can't do. They defeated the Americans faster than the Vietnamese defeated the Americans. Um, they were about a week apart in terms of their uh, victory over the capital city. So they felt that um, they needed to develop faster than their neighbor to, to get ahead and, and make sure they weren't taken over. So, so they launched this full-scale attempt to, to uh, rapidly revolutionize or overturn society. What does what Nunchio, what, what what's he remember about this? What does he say about this period at the beginning of their reign and how it worked? He, he is strangely, I think, a bit proud of that time hmm. because he felt like they accomplished something that was necessary. He kept talking about how they had a clean society and smash all the old ideas and as part of doing that, they sent everyone in the cities to the countryside to labor, um, you know, in the farmlands and in the rice fields. Um, they, again, eliminated markets and, and money, and um, they got rid of, you know, things like, you know, karaoke or people singing or plays or, you know, a lot of cultural things that she saw as sort of sinful or kind of, silly and, and not productive. Um, and he, in, in terms of that aspect of it, seemed to be um, a bit proud of that because it fit his sort of puritanical nature and way of seeing how the world should be. And, and does he have a sense that, that most people in Cambodia, most ordinary people in Cambodia supported those efforts, or does he, he feel like he was trying to drive a population on that, that didn't get it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he he recognized that people were reluctant to leave their homes and and go to the countryside. Um, but he kept saying how necessary that was because you know there was a lot of destruction during the years of war and Cambodia had to rebuild, and it was up to all of the country's citizens to participate in that. And and again, it was sort of part of them he and Pot remaking society and wanting to create this strange utopia that, you know, obviously ended up being the total opposite. Yeah, what, what, in one way, what's so distinctive about this period, of course, is the rather extraordinarily, or extraordinary costs in life and health and kind of well-being. Um, can you talk just a little bit about how so many people died and, and, and then say something about how she explains and remembers this? I sort of divide kind of the, the victims of that time um, in, in terms of the way they died in two ways. Um, there were many who died just of starvation and lack of health care and just sort of the general state of affairs there where there wasn't enough food, there wasn't enough, um, you know, proper hospitals or even trained um, health care staff, especially because one of the enemies um, that the Khmer Rouge had sort of designated were the educated people. So even if you wore glasses or, you know, had certain kind of clothing, you were seen as possibly an intellectual and that meant, you know, an enemy um, of, of the government and someone who benefited from the previous regime and therefore was probably, you know, corrupted and, and could not be trusted to help rebuild the government. Um, so there are people who sort of died of starvation and, and lack of health care. Then there were, which was even more disturbing, were people who were killed, who were chosen as, you know, enemies of the state, um, whether that was high leaders who Nunchia had known for years and were, was close to, or people in the countryside who were um, deemed as enemies. And, you know, even simple things like eating a piece of fruit that you weren't supposed to eat was an economic crime and you could be killed for that. Um, you know, if you had an affair, especially in this sort of puritanical state they were trying to create, um, that was also deemed um, a, a crime that could be punishable by death. And it created this very um, surreal society where everyone was spying on everyone else. You had, you know, family members turning on each other just for pure survival instincts, because if you pointed out somebody as an enemy, then you were seen as protecting yourself um, because then they wouldn't possibly suspect you. And it just created this um, really, uh, surreal society where people, you know, a lot of people just stopped talking because they just didn't want to be noticed and, you know, became mute and it was just better to be sort of seen and not heard and not draw attention to yourself. Yeah. And, 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 and if I'm reading you right, you basically suggest that what happens is that they create, at least for some people, kind of a self-reinforcing cycle where they, they arrest people, they torture them, they mistreat them, they get them to confess, uh, and, but also to incriminate other people who then are brought in, and what happens is that it becomes extremely difficult 
to figure out who exactly is an enemy and who isn't. Yeah, exactly. Because almost everyone then begins to be pointed out as an enemy. And it's strange because there are times when we would talk to Nunchia where he would um, talk about these enemies, um, you know, these purges that happen of the top leadership. And he would defend them. He said that these were enemies. They were, you know, one person was supposedly trying to assassinate Pol Pot. Another was trying to work with Vietnam to invade Cambodia. And he says all these people deserved to be killed. But then there were other times when he seemed to understand what they had created. And there was one instance where um, the head of the the infamous S-21 torture prison, um, comes to Nunchia and says uh, one of the top leaders um, was now found to be a traitor. And Nunchia said, well, if, if he's a traitor, that means everyone's a traitor, including me. And soon I'll be accused of, of being a traitor. And so he keeps this information to himself and he doesn't tell Pol Pot. So there were times when he seemed to recognize the sort of monster that they had created. And then there were other times when he would talk um, about these enemies and how they deserve to be killed. So it was very interesting, sort of the juxtaposition of, of those two aspects of it. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's not unusual in a kind of communist leadership, in communist leadership, but I, but I was struck by, by your point about fear of the educated and, and yet he was himself reasonably well-educated. Did, did he ever attempt to wrestle with that? Or Exactly. I mean, he and, I mean, Pol Pot, all these leaders went to, you know, a lot of them were educated in France. They could speak French. Um, Nunchi could speak Thai and Vietnamese. I mean, these were not, you know, your sort of average Cambodians. But because they used um, their sort of education and their upbringing to struggle for the movement and they felt they had um, made all these sacrifices and they lived in the forest and just, you know, did everything for the movement that they were sort of the clean ones and that the people who were, had similar educations or, or less so, um, or people who were businessmen and, and other types of careers, um, that these were they weren't part of the movement, that means that they were part of the corrupt and they were part of the old regime and they were part of the old ways of doing things. And these were people who some of them couldn't be re-educated. And so as a result, then they needed to be dispensed with. And so things kind of spiral out of control fairly quickly uh, until the Vietnamese invasion brings at least Khmer Rouge political control to an end. Um, and yet Chia remains dedicated to the movement. How does he, how does he explain, explain the failure of, of the Khmer Rouge period in power? And, and, and does he, does he cast any doubt on himself or? Well, he does say that, um, you know, they, they just didn't have enough time that three years, you know, just over three years wasn't enough. And that, they needed more time to rebuild, and if they had that time, they, you know, they, there would have been more progress than there had been. Um, obviously, they also felt um, at fault for allowing for the Vietnamese 
to invade. And he talks about as they're escaping the Vietnamese and, you know, running to the north that Pol Pot at that time actually offered to resign because as the leader of the Khmer Rouge, he failed to prevent the invasion of his country. And, you know, the leaders around him urged him to stay on because this was not the time for a change in leadership. And, you know, they really needed him to, to stay. Um, in terms of, you know, the other mistakes that were made, he does now talk about the killings and some of the people who were sent to the S-21 prison um, that they had, you know, sort of minimal crimes or, or not even crimes at all, and that, you know, some of those people should have been released. Um, he says that he did tell the prison chief about some of those cases, but because he wasn't in, in charge of that aspect of it, he, he doesn't know happened with, with those cases. Um, but he does say, you know, I, as the leader of the regime, I have to accept all responsibility for what happened. But then he goes on to, you know, talk about the U.S. and their role in the war. They talk about um, China and Vietnam. And, you know, he, he, he wants the Khmer Rouge to be seen in a more holistic way as opposed to just those years. He thinks, you know, if you're going to talk about what happened and what went wrong, you have to talk about the colonial period and then what came after that and then the U.S. involvement. And, you know, maybe there's obviously some aspect to that that would, is helpful to have that more um, holistic picture. But, you know, they're not the ones who caused Nunchia or Pol Pot to believe that, you know, killing masses of people you know, for the greater good. I mean, they, they did that themselves. Yeah, I, I was going to say, so, so you've listened to him talk about this. Uh, my sense from reading the book is that you think that this is, this is an explanation he truly believes rather than one he's simply giving to reporters because he's afraid they're going to tell other people about what he thinks. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I do think, um, because there were a lot of things that he could have, uh, not revealed, um, especially in terms of the purges. I mean, he talked about the people who deserve to be killed and, and all of that, and still seems to really believe they were enemies who had these plots. Um, and he, you know, someone who kind of lived in this world of his creation for a long time, um, and so he sort of mixes, you know, reality with with fiction, but he's, out of anybody else that we had met, was still a true believer. Hmm. So, so many people who have kind of a casual knowledge of Cambodia, that, that their attention ends at the, at the end of the 70s with the Khmer Rouge out of power, but of course the, the fighting goes on for a long time. Why does the Khmer Rouge keep fighting, um, and, and to what degree were they successful? Well, so they, you know, wanted to try to get back their country, and they did fight for a long time. I mean, the war lasted for 10 years um, in Vietnam and finally kind of ended in sort of a stalemate. Um, but they were, you know, working to get back to power. Um, I mean, they didn't make enough progress, obviously, to really gain much ground. They held sort of the, the northwest um, area of the country, but not much else. Um, the strange part is because of the, the 
U.S. Russia Cold War aspect of it, or I should say the Soviet Union at that time, um, the U.S. was in some ways helping um, the Khmer Rouge because being backed by the Soviet Union. So in terms of sort of that proxy battle between the two Cold War enemies, um, the Khmer Rouge actually got help from from the U.S., from Thailand. They maintained their seat in the United Nations for a while. Mm -hmm. So they did have some decent backing, but it just didn't prove um, enough to, to have them unseat the Vietnamese in any way. And so after almost an entire life in this revolution, Nguyen Chia finally decides to defect um, or surrender. I don't know what the right word is. How, why does he decide to do that? And, and, and what, is the, what happens to him after he surrenders? about, uh, you know, I don't know if it's ironic or delusional or what, but he talks about end of the Khmer Rouge as being the most um, difficult time in hmm. seeing the implosion of this movement that he had dedicated his life to just fall apart because of infighting and, and other issues. And it really saddened him and was sort of a devastating blow. And at that point, there were um, different factions starting to appear within the Khmer Rouge movement. And, you know, some troops, including um, Pol Pot's brother-in-law, Aung Sri, had already defected. He, he, he was one of the early ones and took a lot of Khmer Rouge um, troops with him to, to the government. And so the movement was already in... Uh, bit of a disarray, but what really sealed the deal was when Pol Pot um, had the family of um, the former Khmer Rouge defense minister, Son Sen, and, and Son Sen himself killed. And it was a very brutal killing. There were 16 people total who were killed. And that really sets off then this fighting between um, the different factions that actually eventually leads to Pol Pot's arrest and the show trial of him by another Khmer Rouge leader. Um, and, you know, for Nunchia, seeing that and seeing what what happened afterwards after Pol Pot died was just too much for him. And he decided that, you know, the movement he dedicated his life to no longer existed. And so he and, and another Khmer Rouge leader, uh, Kusampan, they decide to defect together. And he then leads a quiet life, right, in a relatively modest setting, um, one in which the party is no longer around to take care of him. Uh, and in that setting, as I read your book, finally, after decades, he feels like he can actually have a family again. He's not seen his family in any significant way since he began the revolutionary proje uh, project. Uh, and so he goes back to see them. What happens? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, to hear about this time when he, after he defects, he visits his village for the first time in years, and his family's all gathered there. It's his younger sister, his aunt, um, and other relatives, all of whom had family members killed by the Khmer Rouge, um, or, you know, people who died during that period because of, you know, starvation or, or lack of health care. And 
they, a lot of them were had very vengeful feelings toward Nunchia for a long time. Um, they said, you know, if they saw him, if he ever came back, that they would try to kill him. Um, it was very, you know, obviously extreme feelings. Um, so when he comes back to his old village, they sort of have this meeting set up where they try to question him. And of course, Nunchia doesn't say much. He, he says, you know, those weren't his decisions or that's not what the Khmer Rouge aim was. Um, and finally, his, his aunt, whose husband was the Khmer Rouge leader who defected, who was kind of, Nunchia was sort of his protege at one point and they lived together. But then because of his defection, um, it's killed by the Khmer Rouge as soon as they come to power. Um, Nunchia apologizes to his aunt for her husband's death and they're both crying and that seemed to kind of let go of these feelings of revenge and his aunt says, you know, I forgive you and, and all that. Um, and then they just proceed to sort of catch up on family news. Um, I think because a lot of them feel like, you know, what's done is done and nothing could bring their relatives back. But when we talked to his sister and, and others, you know, they did want to see him go to trial and they did want him to tell the court or, or hear from him under those settings what had happened. So even though they sort of gave him, forgave him on a personal level, they still felt like they wanted to hear from him what really happened and that, you know, a, the court and the Khmer Rouge trial would be a good way to learn about that. Yeah, that, for me anyway, that's one of the more challenging kind of scenes in the book is to hear you say they kind of went on catching up about family business and and wrapping my head about that is difficult. Now, I, I want to shift gears a little bit because we've done undue justice to the book in some ways because one of the decisions you made when you you, you and your co-author wrote the book was, was precisely to interweave his experience as a victim uh, during the Khmer Rouge rule. Uh, and, and so you tell his story and his family's story, and it's a pretty tragic one. Why did you decide to write the book that way? We thought that we, we didn't want to do another sort of story about the Khmer Rouge told from the victims and talk about the killing fields um, in a way that was very sort of gruesome and, and detailed because not that it you know, that wasn't a worthwhile story to tell, but we felt like that was already out there. There were already many books written by victims of the Khmer Rouge and, um, you know, and their detailed experience during that time. So we felt like because we had all these hours of interviews with Munchia, that's what we really wanted to make as a foundation. But we also didn't want to let that other side of the Khmer Rouge go in terms of the victim's stories. And because of Sambat's experience, we felt like that was a perfect way to sort of counterbalance some of the things Nunchia was saying, you know, where he talks about this utopia they were trying to create and then seeing Sambat and how it actually played out in reality. Um, and then kind of the, the strange friendship that they end up forming um, because of the time that they spent together um, was just 
an interesting aspect as well, where you kind of really see it towards the end, where Sambat was really affected by Nunchia's arrest. And I was even surprised that he was so upset about it. Um, but he became close to him in a way that, you know, he he felt like Nunchia, out of all the other leaders, was the only one who was willing to finally say what happened. And somehow Sambat kind of developed a measure of respect because of that for him. And it, it, my sense was a sense of peace on his own part that he could let go of what happened. Is, is that right or is that going too far? No, no, definitely, because it was something that, I mean, because Sambat is not, he's unlike other um, Cambodian friends I have who are very open and willing to talk about their families tragedy and, and what they suffered through during the Khmer Rouge. Um, so I never really heard Sambat talk about it. And so when we started discussing the idea of him telling his story in the book, he was kind of not um, that eager in the beginning because it's, it's something that he hadn't shared, even with his wife at that point. Um, and it was not a time that he wanted to revisit. It was very painful for him, and he sort of internalized it all. But by working on this project and, and hearing about Nunchia's sort of perspective on things, it did allow him to sort of release that period and, and understand more what happened, and, and that really did bring him um, a measure of sort of closure and, and letting go. Hmm. Uh, one, one, one of the ways you frame this in the book or the broader discussion of the book is to talk about how you can use Chia's life as, as a kind of lens through which to understand perpetrators more broadly. What, what kind of conclusions did you come to after writing this? Well, I think the main thing is that to try to understand someone like this did not mean forgiveness, did not mean excuse, but I think it does add a measure of, you know, better understanding of how these people can think this way, can behave this way, because, you know, they're they're humans. I mean, if you see Nunchia, he just looks like an old grandfather. I mean, when you see him with his grandson, you can't believe that this guy is this evil monster. And so to try to understand that and how that sort of transformation occurs, you know, is I think helpful whether you're trying to learn about the Khmer Rouge or, you know, you, you study Rwanda. Um, I went to Iraq after Cambodia, so what Saddam Hussein did um, and what his sort of foot soldiers did. Um, you know, there are unfortunately a lot of dictators, a lot of terrible leaders um, in this world and uh, who produce a lot of violence and tragedy and we, I think, have to try to understand it and understand where they're coming from to try to fight against it and to try to, um, you know, try to ensure that it, it doesn't happen again. We've we've taken up a lot of your time, Gina. I just have a, a question or two more for you, and 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 that is, you you spent a long time kind of immersed in a subject that most people would think is very grim and depressing. How do you manage that, and 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 how did it, if at all, change 
the way you looked at the world or who you were. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty grim. And I was finishing the book during my breaks from covering the Iraq War, so it was like doubly kind of <laughs> depressed in some ways. Um, but I I felt like it was so important to you know for the Cambodian people and and just for you know people in general to to try to learn from what Nunchia was saying, how he justified his actions, how he perceived his his history and his country's history. And um, and I felt like it, it really, in terms of me as a person, um, just made me be a bit more, not less judgmental, but more willing to try to understand these people as opposed to just writing them off as monsters, which is obviously really easy to do, um, but really trying to take the time to to learn um, about them and, and from their experience and almost suspend your judgment for a certain amount of time just to get their perspective. Um, and it made me, you know, I think a better journalist later because that's, you know, hopefully what you want to try to accomplish as a journalist is, is you know, go out and meet these people and then try to inform and educate readers about, you know, things that maybe they don't want to hear or they don't want to necessarily learn about, but are important in trying to learn about how our world works and, and unfortunately some of the darker parts of how our world works. And so are you working on something else now? Another book? I'm contemplating going back to some other war zones since there seem to be plenty <laughs> going on right now, unfortunately. So, but the, writing a book was really, I mean, it, it's definitely a labor of love. I mean, for Sambat and I, when we first started, you know, it was just me and him, and we later ended up getting a grant, but we put in our own money to fund our trips to see Nunchia, um, and, you know, it, it took a lot out of us. So it, I don't know if I could dedicate myself in that way again because you really have to do it in a way where you immerse yourself to do it justice so we'll see but it was a great experience and Sambat I'm just so proud of him for everything he went through and then coming out with with something like this that that was the result of it, it was really amazing well I, I I can't say how grateful we are that, that that you took that project on. It's a wonderful book, and I hope that all of our listeners will look it up. Thanks so much for being with us, and best of luck, and um, thanks again. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Gina Chan, co-author with Sambat Tet, of the book Behind the Killing Fields, a Khmer Rouge leader and one of his victims, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press as part of its Pennsylvania Studies and Human Rights series. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll return to listen to more interviews on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network.